Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In today's episode, we get to spend time with Yaniv Suisa, who is the founder and managing general partner of SineWave Ventures, the venture capital firm that is focused on connecting early stage technology companies in the enterprise space with government clients. Yaniv, thanks for joining us today. For having me. <laughs> You're welcome. I'd love to start with you telling us a little bit about your fund. When was it started? Why did you start it? What was the goal? What's the thesis? Tell us a little bit about your firm. Sure. The firm I started is called Signwave Ventures. And where it came from probably involves a little bit of my history in the industry and what I've done in the past. So I'll start there probably. My background is I was an entrepreneur. Then I was a senior guy under both Bush and Obama. My group had about $150 billion to invest in new innovative technologies. So that's their link to the tech world. We were investing directly into private companies where we could help commercialize their innovative technology. From there, I was recruited by all the big venture funds because when you are part of a group that controls billions of dollars in a recession, which is particularly relevant nowadays, everybody wants to be your friend. So I was recruited by a lot of the big VCs. I chose New Enterprise Associates, NEA, as my home for a little while, was there for almost a decade, doing early stage enterprise tech and really helping them navigate this intersection between public and private. And so that was really where the what I learned at NEA, where the thesis of SineWave came from. There's very few people who've been in both worlds. I think I'm one of five people max who've been both a senior guy in the public sector and a VC at a top investment firm. Understanding the connection between those worlds as they impact startups is very difficult. And so with SineWave, we invest in commercial companies and enterprise tech companies only. So these are data, cloud security systems, infrastructure type of companies, software-based. They are B2B, sometimes B2B2C, and they are all commercial first. So think of them as baby Microsofts rather than baby Lockheeds. And what we do once we're, when we find these companies is we will invest in the company and we will help open up the public sector vertical for them. So if you take as an example, something like Databricks, which is one of our startups, when they go public, you'll hear they have three primary verticals, although they apply to all kinds of technologies. Those verticals are healthcare, industrial, and public sector. And so we help them on the first two, which are the commercial parts of their business, and also help them build the public sector business from scratch. And so we view at SineWave, the public sector is another set of Fortune 500 companies, right? Because they're all different. There's lots of different parts. Right. And we will then help startups navigate that world. And what's the significance of the sine wave, which is like, a, yeah, it really so, looks like a wave for those that are not mathematically yeah, minded. So it, it does look like a wave. I joke about it two ways. Where it came from is I didn't want to name it, you know, Kleiner Perkins is a great firm, but it's named with human names. And when they move on, it's a legacy for them, but not necessarily reflective of the current people at the firm. So I wanted a name that was not my personal name. Plus a name like Yaniv is not really useful very often when you're dealing with a public facing thing. And so a sine wave looks like a hill connected to a valley. So the two curves look like a hill and then a valley. So a Capitol Hill or DC, which is where part of the firm's value is, and then Silicon Valley, where the innovative tech part of the firm is. So it's a connection between DC and Silicon Valley. 
And I joke with my investors that it looks like a roller coaster ride as well. In this industry for a long time, everything's a roller coaster. And what is it about enterprise tech that you love so much? And what are some exciting trends that you're seeing these days? Yeah. So I, interestingly, when I first got into technology and, or I should say actually more specifically first got into venture with NEA, they are very, at least at the time that I was there, the East coast was very stage specific, but sector agnostic. And so we would look at consumer, we would look at enterprise, and I tended to gravitate toward the enterprise side of things. And the reason is just the way my kind of normal, non-early adopter, non-pop culture brain works, is that if this technology increases your performance and lowers your cost, and therefore does this for your business in terms of a return, why would you not buy it? right, as a customer. Whereas this e-commerce company that sells fashion forward dresses to 15 year old girls, that's gonna be a massive billion dollar thing, I have no clue. There are people who do get that world and they are incredibly effective at their consumer investing. But for me, the enterprise just made a lot more sense for the way my brain thinks. Right. So that's why I ended up doing the enterprise space. In terms of thesis, I think recessions and COVID uh, and a post-COVID world and inflationary world is all good for enterprise tech. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Why? Because you increase performance and lower cost, which is what people need in these environments, right? And COVID, of course, with the remote distributed environments that we've had, but COVID kind of put fuel on the fire, right? That's become incredibly important in the industry. So among the things we're looking at, so one of the things at SignWave that we find interesting, we look at a lot of supply chain technologies, whether that's data related, security related, et cetera. We also look at a lot of deep vertical technologies. So we have our horizontal platforms like our Sentinel One investment, which is cybersecurity and applies to everything or Databricks, which applies to everything. But you can also have deep vertical-based technologies, right? So for example, we invest in a company called Cloud Agronomics that is up and down the ag tech stack, right? In the agriculture industry. And that can be a multi-billion dollar companies nowadays without going into other verticals necessarily, right? And so we've been looking at a lot of those key verticals as well. So those are some quick examples of some things we're looking at. There's a lot of different parts to our thesis, but those are some I'm pretty excited about. Help us unpack a little bit the interaction between commercial and government? Because the government during various periods, as you discussed, has chosen to invest in companies. And a lot of people would say government is not a very good investor because they're driven by politics and other things, but they may be a good buyer. And recently there's the Inflation Reduction Act, which has set aside a lot of money. What's your perspective as to what the government should be doing and how do private companies play into that? Yeah, that's a great question. I 100% agree that the government should not be investing, despite what my career was when I was in the public sector. But I also would say that the political part is irrelevant to some extent, or to a 99% of the time is irrelevant to what I do. Because what we're doing in terms of how I do view the government is just as another Fortune 500 customer, right? I don't think you should build something special or custom for them, at least as a venture company trying to build a big scaled venture commercial business, which I don't think you need to. I think that's folklore that is no longer true for the government. You don't have to. There are some opportunities where you could, but that's not what we would encourage our startups to do. The politics doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, we're going after five, 10, $20 million checks at SineWave. We're not trying to transform immigration policy. And so for us, it's the day-to-day -day people on the ground 
that the Valley is not as familiar with, which is why I think people trip over things. They hear the press, they hear the senators, they hear these things, and they think that's how you get the customers, but that's actually not what it is. It's the people who are the civil servants who are there day to day and control those billions of dollars to be deployed and are immune to the political changes to a significant degree. Right. I also would say that the government is actually pretty, I shouldn't say easy, but it's easier to sell to than most people think. They speak a different language than the Valley does. I always say when you're approaching the government, the Valley likes to sell, and this is what we at SineWave invest in, we like to sell the future and what it's going to be. But when you're approaching a customer, whether it's the government or quite frankly, a commercial customer, you want to sell what it is and can do now reliably. And so that translation is really important. But if you can do that translation with the help of SineWave as an investor in your deal, then you're able to really land deals pretty effectively through some tricks of the trade. And the cool thing with the government is it expands exponentially once you're in. It's a much bigger expand part from the land and expand portion. And then the last thing I'll say to wrap that point up is there are a lot of tricks of the trade for getting at the public sector fast and effectively. And that isn't always the route people think. The public sector shouldn't just be thought of as the agencies in the government. You can also think of it as the, obviously people would think of the Lockheeds and Boeings or the Deloitte's and Booz Allen's. You can also think of it as the AT&T's and Cisco's and nowadays Amazon's and Microsoft's and your SpaceX's and Palantir's of the world. And sometimes there are ways to partner and get on contracts and sell quickly and effectively that gets you both the public sector business and the commercial business at the same time in a way that kind of reduces the headache that people tend to think you need to go through. Sometimes we go direct and we navigate that headache effectively, but sometimes you have to partner and you have to go through different routes. So it's really important to view the ecosystem broadly rather than selling only to this one agency for this specific customized purpose. And I know you've mentioned a couple portfolio companies earlier on, but did you maybe want to touch on one or two portfolio companies and also how you've aided them through that process or just generally? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'll give you one that's vertical specific and one that's horizontal. Perfect. So with Sentinel One, which was a cybersecurity company, one of the best things you can say as someone like SignWave investing in a startup, they actually ended up being the largest cyber IPO ever. So a big success and still a great company doing very well. But one of the things we said to them early on was don't bother with the government. Sometimes the best advice we can give is the map, right? Now is not the right time. That's not the right direction. Hold for now so that we're not distracting you from your commercial business, which we will also help you build, right? And so we told them, hold on for a while. We ended up actually getting them connected with Visa, where they won the contract at Visa. And that creates a snowball effect, right? So they end up getting more and more customers from there. You get the high assurance industries like finance, government, healthcare. You get other interesting investors. You get the Fortune 500 stamp. The government is, by the way, especially in security, a huge stamp of your security and your performance. And so then we ended up building the public sector business with them thereafter. And that is now a huge component of their business and their growth. In a more vertical company, I'll use one of our companies. It was originally called Cloud Agronomics. They recently changed their name to Perennial. What Cloud Agronomics can do is they use all kinds of hyperspectral imaging data, algorithm, satellite to be able to analyze billions of acres of land in real time. 
right? And so they can tell you, hey, in this small area, not that you quite put your hands around, but very small, think of it as close to that small, you have this kind of nutrient issue, right? You have this kind of disease in the plants, et cetera, et cetera. So you're able to adjust your agriculture performance and yields quite significantly in real time. And so that allows several business lines. What does it do? It allows the financial business line, which we help them with. It allows the selling to the agriculture world where the public sector is a huge player for obvious reasons. And it also, what we figured out with them is that they can measure the amount of carbon sequestered in the soil. So another vertical they built is they actually issued the first remote credits ever for carbon sequestration through soil. And so we're building a carbon marketplace with them. And in that vein, they're partnered with Microsoft and Google through some of our help as well for the private sector, but they also have to work through as another vertical on that part of their business they have to work through the public sector as well, right? And so we're helping them with the government of Australia, where they issued that first vertical. They're working very closely with the government of India. So these are examples of how the public sector can really transform a business, but you have to know how to play it, when to play it, and have someone like SineWave involved in helping you do that. And the side benefit is you get our cash too, to build your company. Tell us a little more about your strategy in terms of how many people at the firm, what's your average check size, what stage do you invest in? Yeah, so we do early stage. We do seed A, B deals. A and B is the crux, but we'll do a few seed deals as well. Our typical check size is around 4 million, 4 to 5 million, I'd say. So we're always part of a round. We like to syndicate our deals. We will lead our deals. We source our deals. We are not passive investors, but we like to syndicate our deals because it allows us to reduce financing risk by bringing several parties around the table alongside us. So that's why our check's around a $5 million check. And then in terms of team, we are a very focused thesis oriented team. So I learned early on when you're building a firm, actually, you think junior people are the ones you want to hire because there's so much work to do, but actually junior people just add work and you can't actually get as much done as a result because you have to train from scratch. So we are a very senior firm. We have a lot of kind of senior corporate execs, government execs, entrepreneurs, VCs at the firm. And we're very thesis focused. So we use the firm, we are more hunting oriented in our deal flow than passive. So we will create a thesis around a space and go find the startups that fit, work with them and do it that way. And the last thing I'd say is we supplement our team quite a bit with a broad slew of strategic LPs, venture partners, business relationships, public sector relationships who come to, to bear on our companies. Our startups will meet them in diligence even, where they'll help you look at your business, work with you, partner with you, become customers, become acquirers at some point as well, potentially. So we view our ecosystem as quite unique. We have the Valley friends and relationships, but we also have both the public sector Fortune 500 and the Fortune 500 that aren't just Google and Cisco as part of our relationship. One of my favorite questions to ask as of late, because the market is what it is today, having been an entrepreneur yourself and now on the opposite side of the table as an investor, what advice do you have for founders right now, particularly in your sector? So for the enterprise sector, I actually think the market's been Fantastic, because it's actually right. just for, in some ways, not naive, but it's throwing fuel on the fire. Mm -hmm. And for us at SineWave, it's particularly powerful because the public sector actually spends more and more money on commercial tech every year. So it's always good, but it's also particularly good or even better in years when there's a 
when there's something like a recession or where the private sector flubs. And the reason for that is because it tends to spend bigger chunks to buffer the private sector. So if you think about the infrastructure bill, that's a good example of that. So for us, I'd always say, think about the broader market, think about the market beyond the valley, get outside of your bubble in these times and focus on what customers really need. Don't just sell ideas, sell solutions and products that meet the higher performance and lower costs that matter to them, particularly in tough times. The other thing I think is particularly relevant for the market and for entrepreneurs is you have to build businesses, not valuations. We say it to entrepreneurs all the time, stop getting caught up in the valuation game. You're getting ahead of your skis. Nothing stays the same for a 10-year period, right? And it takes a while to build startups from early stage into big, massive exits that we're looking for, the IPOs or the billion-dollar acquisitions. So focus on building your business and doing it the right way, and then the valuations and returns will follow from that. And so I think it's a great time for entrepreneurs to focus on that rather than the fluff. And so it, it tends to bring quite a bit of discipline in these times. That's helpful advice, particularly to your point of it being more advantageous for your particular sector. Having been an entrepreneur, what's the most important thing that you've learned through that process of building a company and operating a company that you have now funneled into being an investor? That's a great question that I've never been asked before yet is particularly relevant. I think that what I would say is a few things. I think the first part is that the team matters and the team needs to be flexible. We talk about pivot all the time, right? But one of the most important things is really making sure you're all aligned incentive-wise on the same page and able to adjust as things change. I don't think there's a single startup who started the way that they ended, right? And so that's really important. The other part of team is you need to be able to recruit top talent and have them understand your vision. And as you're building the talent and having them exercise their talent to win, this is something that Peter Barris, a mentor of mine, who was the managing director at NEA for many years and a senior partner there, he would always give the example of his time at GE, where he would say, one, you need to be honest about what's failing and also allow people to be honest about what's failing. At GE, if you didn't tell someone your business was going down the drains, they'd fire you. Whereas if you did, they'd make sure you had a home. Secondly, you need to be able to make decisions Decisions that matter significantly for your business in a more fundamental way, you take your time making. But decisions that you can make and are changeable, right? You make the decision, you move forward, and you change it if it's needed. So you're always keeping at the pace you need to be moving at as a startup. And I think the last thing is you have to listen to customers. You don't want to build for customers, but you want to build with an understanding of what they need. And so we at SineWave, we integrate customers and partners, commercial, public sectors that are into our diligence. We integrate them in helping our startups. We partner them. We use them to play with the tech along the way, right? They become customers themselves, our channel partners for the startups. That's really important. There's a lot of founders who think they know better or try to tell you what you need. There is an element of telling someone what they need or helping educate them on the solution to what they know they need, but not telling them what they need. It doesn't usually go over well that way. So I think really listening is and using as many folks around the table to help you as possible is key to building a successful business. That's a huge amount of our thesis assignment. Switching gears for a second, tell us a little bit about your background. What kind of name is Yaniv? <laughs> 
Yeah, sure. So Yaniv is a Hebrew name. So my name is Yaniv Swissa. My dad was born in Morocco. Swiss is a Moroccan name in the Atlas Mountains and ended up moving to Israel and growing up there. So Yaniv is a popular Hebrew name, but I spell it with an E. Most people spell it Y-A-N-I-V. I spell it with an E. I think I'm the only one spelt that way on Google or Facebook. So maybe the only one in the world, but it's the standard. Everyone in Israel's name. Trendsetter. Yaniv. It's like, yeah, it's like Joe. <laughs> and my mom's family was from Lithuania. So I always joke, I have a name like Yaniv and I have her Brooklyn accent when they moved to New York. So I say walk and talk and coffee and things like that. So that's where I come from. So you grew up overseas. And when did you come to the States? I actually grew up in New York. So my parents, my mom grew up in Brooklyn, met my dad in Israel, and then they moved over to the U.S. and I was born in New York City. Got it. So you're a New Yorker, basically. <laughs> yeah. Born in New York, grew up in New Jersey. And what was your path to get into technology and entrepreneurship? So I had no interest in technology. If you had asked me, and now it's been almost 15 years, but if you had asked me when I was figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. If I would do anything with tech, finance, investing, startups, the answer would have been hell no. But my approach to life has always been to, to take risks and you need opportunity to present itself. That is true about life. But when opportunity does present itself, you need to one, recognize it and two, jump and take the risk. So for me, a lot of what I've done career-wise is quite varied. I did theater at one point. I worked with the criminal justice system and deviance and gang-related stuff. And then I also did real estate stuff. And then I work in tech and venture. And I worked in the government and the energy space. And a lot of what has driven that has been finding the right people, finding the right opportunities, uh, and being with the right crowd around you, right? That keeps doors open. I always say, take jobs that have a few major things. One, for me, it has to have an impact on the world in a positive way. It has to pay me like a minimum salary, but that's quite low, actually. It needs to be something I'm not qualified to do, which I think is pretty important to always challenge yourself. And then my other favorite one is it needs to be interesting to talk about at a cocktail party because that's how you build relationships. You have conversations and you do great things. And the last one is it has to keep doors open. So everything I've ever done allows me to pivot in a lot of different ways as I figure out what I want to do next. Very eclectic list. So if I was an entrepreneur, I came to pitch you, what is a key piece of advice you would offer and what's a pet peeve that you would encourage people to avoid? It's a great question. So there's a few things. One, you have to sell, but you also have to be aware of the risks, right? VCs want to know that you recognize the risk and know how to mitigate them. They don't want you to pretend that there are none, right? So always be prepared to, to be straightforward like that. That's one thing. The other pet peeve I have is start with what you do. The number of pitches I've heard where it's like, we have this much revenue and this much stuff and this is these. And okay, what do you do? Like, I don't, I understand the revenue, but I need to know what's getting you that revenue and what you've built and what you're solving. It's amazing to me how many folks lead with that and don't start with, this is what we've actually solved. This is what our tech does. And by the way, we've then gotten these customers. And so I think the order of the logical trajectory of how the, I think the average mind would think is how I would love people to present. The other two things are get to know you as a person. I like to get to know the person, get to to know me as a person, right? You want to make sure that we click and fit because this is like a marriage, right? We're together for a very long time. It's a coaching, mutual coaching opportunity. And I think the last one, which is just a fun one, actually turned out to be a great investment is do not smoke before a meeting. You probably should smoke anyway, <laughs> but don't smoke either, either cigarettes or pop before a meeting with an investor. 
Although there's a story out, there that we need to hear. There is a story there. <laughs> it turns out that particular entrepreneur, we ended up investing actually and made a ton of money, but I always held it against him so, <laughs> on the side. Always, he always had to buy me drinks because he smelled like cigarettes. Yeah. Remember, although we're chill and we wear t-shirts and it's a more relaxed meeting than going in a suit and tie, don't take it for granted. Great advice. You mentioned a couple of the four markers, basically, from a career standpoint of what's necessary baseline for you to be interested. But with regard to venture capital in particular, what are the things you love about being a VC investor the most? My favorite thing is, so I think there are three muscles in venture. One is the tech muscle, the former Stanford professor of computer science muscle. One, and you need all three. One is the build a business, former entrepreneur, kind of board advisor muscle. And the third is the relationship network muscle, right? The connecting tissue muscle. Mm -hmm. And I think every, every partner at SineWave, every partner in venture broadly has a different profile across those muscles. My big, big, big muscle is the network relationship muscle. I have the other two, but that's my strongest one. And because what I love is meeting people. I could meet people all day long. And so for me, what do I get to do in venture? Not only do I meet people all day long, but I meet people who have that like spark in their eye, trying to build something with a passion that they're excited about. Unfortunately, 99% of the time I say, sorry, but you are able to either help them because when I say, sorry, I try to offer some advice or an introduction or something, or you actually invest in them and help them build that and realize that dream and make that spark become a big flame. And so for me, that's, it's really fun to see that, that glimmer in someone's eye when they talk about the thing they really love. And by the way, there are lots of entrepreneurs who come back to the table, come to you and don't really love what they're doing. And we can read it in 10 seconds. And that's not someone we would bet on. So it's really important to really be into and passionate about what you're building, because this thing requires persistence. Building a fund required persistence. Mm -hmm. Building a startup requires persistence. You're going to be in the mud all the time. And if you can't see that spark and that light, you're going to fall in the mud and give up. So you just got to keep crawling out, crawling out, crawling out. That's the thing I love. I love seeing that spark in people. If sine wave was a person, how would you describe him or her or they? <laughs> Great question. We are a particularly irreverent firm. I think we're fun, quirky, and irreverent. We are not typical VCs at SignWave. We all came from different worlds. We're not all from, but we have backgrounds at Google and places like that, but we're not all from the same place. We're not all Valley techie people, although we have some of that too. So we're very quirky, do it the practical, pragmatic way that makes sense and gets things done, not the fluffy, markety way that everybody does things. And I think we are irreverent and quirky and different for that reason. We kept SignWave quite quiet in the beginning because like you say to your startup, get your product right before you start pimping it out. But now we've started to think about more marketing and among the things we're going to do is we're going to do some fun, quirky TikTok videos, making fun of us and other VCs and other tech things. We're not going to be doing, here's our startup and they raised this much money and which a lot of folks do. So I think we're a bit of this irreverent, different kind of fun beast. I'm looking forward to seeing those. They should be pretty cool. I'm excited about it. Awesome. So switching gears over to our four standard question segment, our first question is the National Venture Capital Association question. MVCA advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? I think that venture needs to do a 
a better job of distinguishing itself from private equity. It's a form of private equity, but they are different businesses. And I think when we get lumped together, it creates issues. This is potentially a self-interested argument, but I'm going to make it anyway, because it's an obvious one that are top of people's minds, given the recent legislation and press, but you carried interest, right? We get lumped in these vulture capitalists. They're referring to VCs, but they're talking about some of the private equity people, right? Venture people don't come in, fire a bunch of people and then sell the company two years from that. That's not our model, right? That what we're doing is building a company from scratch. We're the angels, not the vultures. Some of us are, don't get me wrong, but that's not our model. And I think starting to make that distinction for entrepreneurs, for the press, for the MVCA, when they're doing their lobbying work on behalf of the industry, I think that's something that would be hugely beneficial to everyone. Because I think when you're trying to build an ecosystem that supports something, it's easier to support the concept of venture than it is to get people to support the concept right. of PE, right? I think right. venture has more of a social good, moral progress tone to it versus the P, which is a little bit more money focused. Not all, but a little bit more just about the money. And so I think that distinction would be helpful. Awesome. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? So this is an easy one. I actually got asked this question once at business school and my answer is still the same to this day. I would be a talk show host. That kind of plays into a little bit of the TikTok stuff, but it gets me to get my like creative performative side out while still doing venture, but I would be a talk show host. Do you have an idol that's someone that you have watched on TV that you'd want to emulate? I always say I'd want to be a mix of Tony Robbins, Oprah, and Judge Judy. That's a good mix. <laughs> Oprah, because she's all about impacting the world. And she's Oprah. And changing people's lives. Uh -huh. Tony Robbins, because he really makes it pragmatic in your day-to-day -day life. And Judge Judy, because she tells it like it is and doesn't play games. Love it. Would you be like a late night talk show host or early morning? It's a good question. I don't wake up in the mornings. Okay. I'm a, I don't do meetings or calls in the single digit hours unless they're 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. So good I'm a you. night owl, so I'd probably be an evening person. Okay, I like it. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? Um, I was thinking about this question recently, and I'd say I might answer with three people for different reasons, and I'll keep them quick. The first in the kind of the political world, which I'm in, right, I would say I really look up to Mike Bloomberg. Whether you like his politics or not, what I love about him is he is actually losing money or was losing money when he was the mayor of New York, right? He loses money by being in government, right? And if they don't do it and he thinks it's the right thing, he'll fund it himself, right? And so I think having that lack of self-interest, but really for the public good element is an important part of being an effective leader. And Mike, I think, embodies that. The second one I'd say is a little more in the vein of the world I'm in on the tech side is Steve Case, who is the founder of AOL. What I love about Steve is I think you meet a lot of investors. I've met a lot of billionaires in my lifetime now. You meet a lot of folks who are very successful in venture and just period, in both through the political world and the venture world. And there are two types in my mind. There are those who forget that they were once asking for help or they were once the low guy on the totem pole and that many people helped them along the way and they treat you like you're a subordinate or a person who they don't have time for. And then there are those who remember that they once were holding out their hand and they once needed help and they once had that spark that needed supporting. And you can see that billionaire or successful person can see in you, that other person, that they could make you them or better if they were to engage or help you or give you a piece of advice or whatever. And I think Steve is very much that 
positive kind of person who is there to enable others who were in the same position as him with great ideas who he can help foster. And then the last one is an actual VC himself. Steve still does some investing in the venture world, but he does a lot broader. That would be Peter Barris at NEA. There's very few people who I love talking to, have a very close relationship with, yet also intimidate me every time I talk to them. And Peter is one of those. And I think it's just that he's he doesn't play games. He has the experience and the background to give you the right kind of advice in a very straightforward, pragmatic way that you can implement it. And I know he doesn't have that ego. He's a luminary, a key person in the industry, connected and educated and experienced up to wazoo, but he doesn't act that way. He certainly has that persona and aura of someone who might intimidate you for those reasons, yet he's not that guy in that negative perspective. So he's the other one. That's great. Number four is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received, if I could put it into a sentence, was think of your life. And this is actually from an, he's much older now. He's toward the end of his life, but he was an entrepreneur. And he always said, think of your life as a book with many chapters and the people who matter, the things that matter, the places that matter, the all of those things. Some of them last through all of the chapters of the book, and some of them don't. And new characters come in, and new things come in, and new experiences come in, and some go out the door. And you just have to realize that's life, that there are different chapters. It's interesting. I think it applies to your day-to-day life when you break up a relationship, for example, or when you change a location geographically, or someone passes away or whatnot. But it also applies to startups in that the same CEO who started at the seed stage isn't always the one who applies at the growth stage. And you know what the startup starts of isn't what it's necessarily going to end up in the last chapter. So I love that analogy of thinking as, as you're living multiple lives in one lifetime is how he said it. Yeah, that's right. You live multiple lives in one lifetime. And with that, thank you very much, Yaniv, for joining us today. We really enjoyed our chat. Thanks for having me. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc.